Before we begin, everyone at Clapper fully supports the Black Lives Matter movement and the ongoing protests. You can find information on how to donate and support the movement by following the hashtag Black Lives Matter on Twitter or by a simple Google search and fight this ongoing injustice. Hello and welcome to Clappercast, a weekly discussion of all things cinema. I'm your host, Clapper Editor-in-Chief, Jacqueline Sharp, and today I'm joined by my co-host Rory Marsh. Hi there. Writer Jakob Flash. Hello. As well as creator and writer Diego and Deleuze. Hey. Today we're going to talk about Nicholas Ash Bateman's debut, The Wanting Mare, alongside the second trailer for Christopher Nolan's Tenet, the future of Universal's monster movies, and the sizzle reel for Shane Carruth's Topiary. Let's start with um, the second trailer for Tenet. This is Christopher Nolan's newest kind of original venture into the kind of sci-fi action genre that he experimented in with Inception. What do you guys think of this next look into Christopher Nolan's film? Uh, let's start with Jakob. Yeah, I think, well, I'm looking forward to the film in general. I would love to see it. And if the uh, worldwide pandemic wasn't around, I would love to see it in July. However, there's, this is an elephant in the room also because I think well, this is Warner Brothers, the only te- well, only temp- temple on the slate, um, and they don't really, I don't really think they're in in a financial position to um, just not let it happen. Especially that this film is probably not going to do well on VOD. It's this is something that has to be probably experienced on a larger screen. So it's it's it. They're they're in, they're in a bit of a difficult position. What do you guys think? To echo your sentiments, I, I completely agree. I, I think that Warner Bros. need this out. More so, I think cinema chains need this out as well. We've just got the um, news that AMC are looking that bankruptcy is going to be a massive possibility. And I think in the UK, we've, there's been chatter of certain cinema chains not being able to survive after this summer. Uh, and that puts a lot more emphasis on Tenet actually getting a release the trailer seems to believe it so that it will actually get a release in cinemas will it i'm not too sure it depends on how the next few months progress um depending on where you are in this world it'll look positive it'll look negative my only issue of this is that will warner brothers push this out regardless and not truly understand that not only is this not i wouldn't necessarily say this is a safety hazard like Jakob said, he'll go to the cinema to see it. I will go to the cinema to see it. I'm sure Diego will go. I'm sure you'll go, Rory. There's a lot riding on this. I, I think that Warner Bros. are not necessarily in tune with the fact that this may be the wrong time, the wrong decision. And a simple pushback wouldn't really damage it, would it? It, 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 it rides the coattails of a Nolan film. It has John David Washington in it. It has Robert Patterson. Uh, Kenneth Branagh, Michael Caine. It has good star power, but people go to these films for Nolan alone. They want to be, they want to be immersed. They, they want to love uh, the setting, the aesthetic. So, will it come out in cinemas? Yeah. Will it probably come out soon? I don't think so. I think it'll get pushed back, uh, but by by a few months, we'll probably see it by the end of the year. But June, July, August, September, I wouldn't count on it. Well, I, for one, do agree that like this film is going to be super important to like see the future of cinema in the next couple of months but I do feel like it should and it will open in the summer should and it could because for one it will like Jack and like Jacob said it will save cinema and especially for the next couple of months and it will define what goes on there 
And even though financially it may not have the best opening weekend, I feel like if we look into like blockbusters of the past, this could function in that way in that maybe it doesn't have the best opening weekend, but with the word of mouth and with everyone wanting to get out and go places, it will have strong following weekends and it could eventually make its money back. Now, like you said, I don't think VOD, it will do anything for this film, but I do feel like if it gets released, it will make its money back. And it's something that I'm, it's highly anticipated in my book. I think the main issue with Tanat here is, so this is the highest budget that Chris Nolan's ever received for one of his original films. Uh, so it's costing $205 million. And the highest budget film he's ever made was The Dark Knight Rises, which was $250 million. And I think it's not a case of earning its money back. It's a case of this is one of Warner Brothers' biggest hitters they've had in the last few years. This thing has to, you know, double, triple its budget to be worth uh, Warner Brothers' time. And also, if this does poorly, that's a huge, you know, a huge uh, issue for Warner Brothers there. So it's not a case of making its money back. It's a case of Warner Brothers biding their time and finding a time where as many people are going to the cinemas again, this may be, this may not even be in 2020, this could be 2021, but they need to find the ideal time to strike and deliver this, you know, $200 million plus film to the largest audience possible, no matter when that will be. Just to echo Rory as well, Warner Brothers have got a lot riding on this. They're in the hole. Warner Brothers have already geared up with uh, selling the film. The advertisements are now going through the roof. This is the second trailer we're talking about. It's undoubtedly going to come out. Warner Brothers have to release this to, to earn money. They're probably maybe $200 million already in the hole. We look at Dunkirk. Dunkirk, $150 million a top budget. A box office at $500 million. What are we really looking for, Tanet, to, to come out and hit? What, what, what's everyone's thoughts on its opening weekend? Well, if I'm in, to actually go, go off this point of, say, money-wise, this, well, this film doesn't need to just do well. It, this needs to be a billion-dollar success, at least. Because if you think about budget of $255 million, that's just production. There's no, usually no one, no one includes marketing costs in this, and that's just for domestic markets. And if you think about international markets, they need to make quite a bit more to actually even break even. So this is, this is what, and also, if you think about the uh, release slates from last year, say top 10 box office earners from last year and the years before, Warner Brothers not, is not even in the top 20, or probably closing top 20 with like Aquaman and Shazam and things like that. It's all Walt Disney making money there i think if if they don't make this work you may actually wake up one day in a situation where you see Warner brothers filing for bankruptcy because they don't have anything else on uh on the slate that will be a big like a big hitter like this so this this needs to work and then this is why i, I understand that they are on on the clock because they're probably they're cash revenues are just drying out slowly because no, no one's going to cinemas nothing's happening and if they don't release it this year and they don't release it soon they might be in a bit of a pickle this is an ip this is uh not connected to any franchise or anything this is a film the plot of which only a couple maybe at most a couple of hundred people actually know what this film is at all so the fact that this has been given a $205 million budget, I think its success is crucial to the future of big budget 
uh, original ideas and original filmmaking, because that's something that we very, very rarely see in this day and age. I don't want to gamble, but I will say this. Tenet's not making a billion dollars. Tenet's probably not going to make its budget back. I can say that right now. If Disney put Mulan out a week before or the day off that Nolan and Warner Brothers put Tenet out, Tenet will get crushed. I think they're playing this far too close to the chest. They need to start releasing information on what this plot's about. No one's going to go into this film with no acknowledgement of what it's about. No one's going to risk their money paying audience members when they can go see Mulan and get a property they know of and they can take the children and they can get a little bit more out of it um, enjoyment-wise than being in the world they're living now. I just think this, this needs to be pushed back a year. They need to go down the universal um, idea. Even Bond coming back in November, it's not going to work. But Bond might make a big impact like uh, because it's property, but Mulan will be the winner in this summer if it gets released. I think push Tenet back a year, take the summer of 2021. I, I think Warner Brothers are really going to have to um, swallow the pride on this one. I, I truly do. And I think this is going to be a billion dollar loss. And, and, and I don't want to echo what Jakob said about bankruptcy, but I think Warner Brothers are, are going to have to bite the bullet on this one and move on because this is, this is going to be a massive, massive loss. Well, if it is a loss, but, you know, people, some people on like press was kind of just touting this film as, oh, there, there, there will be, there, there are films before Tenet and there will be a, a massive tectonic shift that this film will, will make, right? Will make it happen. If this is a massive loss, that's exactly what's going to happen because you'll never see original uh, properties hitting screen with hitting screens with 250 million dollar budgets. You'll see more Avengers, more Transformers films. You'll see, you know, you'll see the sixth sequels and remakes and reboots to any to any property from the 80s that made vaguely enough money to to warrant itself being being useful. But you won't see original content with massive budgets attached to it. This will be the death of sort of original thought in Hollywood. Well, in my opinion, I feel like best case scenario, it could make 60 million first week and maybe like 40 million second week. But one thing needs to happen, and that is more plot information needs to be released. We saw this happen with Blade Runner, where the director wanted to have secrets. He wanted it to be mysterious. But that ended up backfiring him tremendously, and they lost a ton of money. And that is kind of what Nolan is doing now. He may be a bigger name, but honestly, to general audiences, they won't know much of the difference. So they need to start releasing more plot details. And if they do, and if it turns out to be, wow, very good, a lot of action that maybe general audiences like, then I feel like it could stand a chance to make its budget back. Obviously, I think I speak for everyone here when I say we're all hugely excited for this film. It's probably... Mm-hmm. one of if not our most anticipated release of the year um but it does hugely worry me uh the importance that the success of tenet has on the future of original films but uh moving on to something a bit more mainstream and more um familiar uh ryan gosling's been cast in uh universal's modern day approach to the wolfman jack i think you have a lot of interesting uh thoughts on this uh what do you what's your opinion here i think i think this news is bizarre i think i can understand why universal would want to ramp up th- this this series after the huge success of lee winnell's invisible man but we've done this we've gone through this before we had the the dark universe a rest in peace we had huge names attached we had huge box office flops um, I think 
Universal will go for the franchise. I think they're trying to replicate the Fast and Furious and everything, every property they do now. We're seeing Jurassic World gear up now for another six, nine films. Um, I think this is a precedent we're going to have to live with. This specific news itself, Ryan Gosling as a Wolfman, I can see that it'll work. Gosling's incredibly talented. He's got a comedic instinct. He's got a great emotional range. The Wolfman's a dynamic character. It's one full of torture, full of pain. I would have no issue with Gosling performing that role. I just feel like this is a new story that's come out with a certain traction that doesn't really mean anything. I, will this ever go forward? I'm not too sure. We've seen from Universal last couple of months we've had um, a, a Lee Winnell say that he may go back and make a sequel. We have an Elizabeth Banks Invisible Woman film, which we're not too sure if that's with a Universal or with Blumhouse, which Blumhouse own the rights to their own small little universe. It's all getting quite confusing. We're all repeating ourselves. Will, will this make an impact if it's a small budget and we get a good director behind it, which is it's looking like Gosling is going to be tapped to make his uh, sophomore effort after Lost River, each to their own. I think Lost River had a sizable impact on, on his career after that. I, as we can see, he's not really got behind the director's chair since 2014. Could be a recipe for disaster. It could be something that's uh, that th everything, the recipe works. Uh, as long as we keep the budget down and Universal don't take too much of a risk, I think it all rests upon that screenplay. We've gone through the, the um, Joe Johnson's Wolfman with Benicio Del Toro. Universal just hacked it away. I, th I think this is something an off thing. If it happens, it happens. But it won't, it won't hit the heights of the Invisible Man. No, nowhere. No chance. Not, not for me, anyway. I think, um, obviously, I, I kind of agree with your ideas about Ryan Gosling being a great actor, questionable behind the camera, but that might be due to a lack of uh, experience or maybe taking influence from certain people. But this is an actor who's worked with Derek C. en France, Damien Chazelle, and, uh, you know, lots of other, Nicholas Winning Ref and lots of other indie talent making some really original, unique films. It just seems such a bizarre shift to go from those to a universal monster film from a creative team whose pedigree with these films recently has been pretty horrific. It just seems like a very interesting career decision for him. Do we know if Blumhouse have got any direct interest in this property? Is this a purely universal production or is it Jason Blumhouse's production company? Because I think that'll tell us mostly what we need to know. I think Jason Blumhouse, we've, we've seen Halloween and the talking about trying to resurrect other horror icons. This could work, uh, like I said, not to reiterate what I've just said, uh, but this is a strange, strange partnership for Gosling. I wonder if Gosling went to Universal for this or he was tapped, because both of them will be very interesting to see, to see what, what the thought process is behind crafting this. Uh, speaking of The Invisible Man, with, with uh, Elizabeth Moss's performance, that has a, uh, a subverted context of, you know, we're living in the Me Too era. It, it works on, on a, on a multifaceted uh, basis. Does The Wolfman? I'm not too sure. It, it did work with Benicio de Toro. It works as, as it did in the 30s and the 40s with um, the actors portrayed them all being from immigrant backgrounds. That could have a great subtext. But for this, I'm, I'm finding a loss for words on what value this is made for, except for it to be a box office partnership. I don't know if anyone else would have an opinion on that, but for me, I'm sort of failing to sort of realise what the emphasis on this film could possibly be. I mean, I think you, you hit the nail on the head in here. Um, I kind of, you know, first thing, when, I, when, I've, when I've read this news item, 
all, all I was thinking, for my first question that just popped into my head is, do we really need this? Who needs this film? Is this really something that, is this a story that needs to be told? Or is this yet another example of Hollywood studios, such as Universal, or um, I don't know, Wonder Brothers is guilty of this as well, jumping on the bandwagon of creating universes and just milking a cash cow of that was just completely accidental. Invisible Man was was a was a February dump slot release. This was not supposed to make hundreds of millions of dollars. This was supposed to be a niche horror that just blew up. It 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 just happened to be great. And um, if you think about studio executives, bean counters, bean counters and producers looking at the success, and they immediately say, how can we milk this? What else do we have in our, in our little pile of properties that we can milk in the same way? What can we do? Can we, the same way they were looking at the, uh, I don't know, Marvel Cinematic Universe. Can we make a dark universe? We've done this in the 40s and look how this turned out. This, I'm 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 lost for words. Like to, to me, this is basically just this is this this is bound to be bad, and, and unless the story warrants it, 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 unless the story is worth its weight in salt, if to to put it in this way. Otherwise, this is this may not even may see the light of day as far as I'm concerned. Just just to push on that, that's very interesting because we don't know what state this is in yet. This this hasn't been greenlit. This is just an active development. So Universal are pouring some money in. That then begs the question to see what Elizabeth Banks, the Invisible Woman property is going to look like. Because if this is a shared universe, that's one thing. If these are independent features, that's another story entirely. We'll, if this goes up against a, a, a competitive Invisible Woman, and then we get another Invisible Man, and then we're having a look at Dracula also being important to this universe, they're making the same exact mistakes that, and I know I hate this example that Warner Brothers made with the DC universe. In, in, in Hollywood, there seems to be a repetitive nature of making the exact same mistake and not understanding what people come to these films. And as Jakub said, I would give The Invisible Man a little bit more credit of saying that it, it blew up without sort of a bigger audience. I think people were looking for that film to, to really be ingested. And I, th I think it works on a multiple uh, slight levels of, like I said, in the Me Too era, an empowering female character that often we, we don't get to see anymore. The Invisible Man doesn't do that for me. It doesn't tell a story that I'm interested in. If it was from an immigrant angle, um, especially with the uh, Mexican-American um, issues that are going on today, I think you've got great material there to exploit and really dig deep and expose the issues of an immigrant in America today. Um, the Invisible Woman, I think we're going to have a repeti repetition there. Uh, Dracula, I, I don't know about you, but I'm done with that now. I think they've, they've trashed that character so much. I'm not interested. I will go see it, but I'm not interested. And out of the two properties of a Lee Whannell sequel, a Wolfman or a Dracula film, I'm going to have to say I'm going back for Whannell's seconds because I'm not really interested in either of these properties and what they've got to say. Well, I feel like... As you said, if it has a unique angle, it can work. And something that came along with the Wolfman announcement was that it was said that it's going to be something very similar to Nightcrawler with Jake Gyllenhaal, but with a supernatural twist. And I found that movie to be very unique. And it now this may just be like marketing to get it more flat, but I feel that it, if it approaches that angle and if it does it well, 
it could bring another unique angle to this. And if subsequent projects can do the same thing, then it might look good for this universe. I mean, to touch on, on your point, actually, um, you know, the idea of this, this being tied to a very successful, albeit niche, sort of lurid tr thriller. This, this to me sounds like a calculated attempt at cashing in on what the Invisible Man did. If you think about the Invisible Man's success, this was not, I, 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 well, I would be, I may, I may have to pull um, Werner Herzog one day and then just eat my own shoe because I, I tend to gamble on these things too much. But I would bet money on the fact that Wanell was not intending to build a universe. He was trying to tell a story, because he wrote this, if I remember correctly, himself. Um, he was trying to tell a story that was sort of loosely inspired by Gaslight. It was, it, it was kind of tapping into the sort of post-Weinstein debacle of... Uh, of I don't know, objectification of women and, and sort of subjugation of women by uh, toxic partners and, and whatnot. This looks like a calculated attempt on behalf of old men in Hollywood saying, we want something like that because this will bring us money. This is nothing else. This, there's, I, 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 smell, I smell it from a mile away. There's no artistic sort of need. There's no desire to make this film. Only that or different than just making lots and lots of money and cashing in on the success of The Invisible Man. I, just to echo on that as well, uh, Jakob, I completely uh, agree with that about the studio, uh, you know, putting all the dice onto this because uh, Lee Winnell's film made money. I find that the Nightcrawler comparison emphasizes that. I, I can't really see it, aside, aside from the tone and the weight of that film, to, to, to get an insight into the horrible things that people will do for money. I, the relevance of that with a Wolfman to me, I, I, I'm just finding that's such a strange comparison. Are we talking about? Are they talking about tone, perhaps? Are they talking about aesthetic? Are they talking about exploring uh, a character as, as as difficult as Leo Bloom, Jake Gyllenhaal's character? I, I, I would not have explored that in the same way as the Wolfman. The Wolfman, for its time in the in 1941, worked because it exposed the double standard of immigration in America, where you could have a highly successful performer, but yet people in the streets would look at you as, as a second-class citizen. That's why it worked. Those themes are relevant still today. Why not explore that with more weight and more poignancy? To, to counter it with Nightcrawler, for me, they're missing a huge mark here, and missing a huge mark misses a huge audience. And, it, and it's missing the fact that it can say something far louder through its conversation than it can do through its screen. And I, I'm, 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 the more, the more we, we talk about Universal, especially with the Dark Universe, the more it becomes so complicated and it becomes so infuriating that the easiest steps are there, the basis to make something brilliant and make something effective. The, the recipe is, is there to create a huge amount of, of conversation and topic and each and every time we get to this point, it seems to be just a casual repetition of, let's go for the money, let's go for the box office. So we've spoken about Ryan Gosling's potential behind and in front of the camera of the Wolfman. Now, looking at the basis of what Universal created in the 30s, we have Bride of Frankenstein, Frankenstein, the Wolfman, Dracula. Is any pair up anyone here would like to see? So for example, you know, we've got Robert Eggers' Nosferatu potentially coming out, and we had Bill Condon's 
Bride of Frankenstein. I would love to see Herzog get back in the saddle and go back in for a Dracula. And also, I, I wouldn't mind seeing something like Aronofsky just make an incredibly dark Dracula film. But for The Wolfman in particular, is, is anyone else feel like Gosling's perhaps not really the right person for this? Would anyone else like to see anyone else behind the camera or in front of it? I have an idea. I want Edgar Wright to direct Simon Pegg and Nick Frost as Abbott and Costello meeting Elizabeth Moffs as the uh, uh, as the invisible woman now. <laughs> about that. You, you joke about that, Jacob, but that's probably not far, far off what, what's probably going to happen yeah. in the next decade. I could mm. pitch it to Universal and someone would get a boner. I'm not, I'm not kidding. Or maybe you could have uh, Steve Coogan and John C. Reilly's Stan and uh, Lauren and Hardy meeting Ryan Gosling's The Wolfman. That could be an interesting yeah. one. Yeah. Me and Rory have got our opinions on the, on the BBC um, adaption, which I, I'm going to just put now is horse shit. Um, Highly negative, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I, w- I would like to see a Frankenstein film. I would even like to see a Van Helsing film done again a really rural independent film just looking at not not necessarily monsters but looking at like monsters of man horrible mm. things that that that's happened in the 16 1700s by people who because they don't understand immigrants or they don't understand someone else's tongue uh, there's there's violence that erupts and there's this prejudice i think that there's so much material there to explore a frankenstein thing now is a little bit is it saturated i don't know i think we could probably get another one out. i think the kenneth Branagh, robert de niro one uh i mean it's a, it's a long time ago now i mean things have changed how you can sort of connect that story into something now would be very difficult an angle i find but i think the wolfman i think bride of frankenstein works as well but obviously you probably have to go in for frankenstein first yeah. Um, I've, I'm got, um, I've got. Sorry, I'm going to say I'm not really impressed with the uh, Banks, the Invisible Woman. Um, I think we've got that with the Invisible Man. I think that's the the subversion of expectations by following that story of a woman. I, I think that's going to be redundant, as, as I've mentioned before. But my my take on it, I, I would go back in for Frankenstein. Roll the dice. You might as well. Uh, my pitches would probably be having thought them over. Guillermo del Toro doing a Dracula film. Obviously, he was quite campaigning to do the uh, Creature from Black Lagoon, which he basically did with The Shape of Water. But think about the production design and things on Crimson Peak and how that would work for Dracula's castle and creating that atmosphere. And yeah, he's a prestige director. He loves monsters. This is his wheelhouse. And then my second idea is a bit, would probably work better if it was made in the 80s, but if Terry Gilliam did a Frankenstein film, you look at the steampunk aesthetic of something like Brazil and apply that to uh, the story. I think that would be a really interesting and maybe surprisingly accurate to the novel take on that idea. How about, because um, you mentioned Frankenstein, Jack. Well, it, it's difficult to kind of do a new one anyway, because it's, it's been done to death almost, right? Um, and then what you think about what this usually is connected to thematically, it's usually the idea of science going or getting out of hand right people the mad scientist concept kind of comes kind of sort of from there um at least one of the strands of that sort of traces to to frankenstein um now how about paul verhoeven doing a frankenstein remake this will be properly gro- oh david cronenberg how about that that would be good that sounds yeah, great. I, I, yeah, would, I'm, I would I'm pay to that. see that tomorrow. I would, I would pay to see that tomorrow. That'd be, that'd be, that'd be pretty good. I do have to ask the question. Uh, sorry, Diego, if you want to go first about your potential mash, but then I'll, I'll go to something that was really going to ruffle some feathers. Oh Jesus! So I just say, like, I agree with all of you guys. As long as we get, like, horror directors or directors who've dabbled in horror, like Guillermo del Toro or 
David Cronenberg, people who maybe haven't done a horror horror movie, but this could be a good avenue for them to expand into that. That would be something I'd like to see. I'm just going to put this out there into the void. I hope it doesn't upset anyone. But let's say that The Wolfman comes out next year and it makes $300 million. And let's say Elizabeth Banks, The Invisible Woman, comes out and it makes $500 million. And let's say Dracula comes out and it makes $500 million. There will be a point where Universal will see that a a shared universe becomes a possibility again. Do you want to see it? And how badly do you think that's going to fail? How do I put it delicately without resorting to explosives? Uh, How about, hmm... I don't want to see it. I really don't. <laughs> just because you, you, when when I think I knew where you were going with this, and when they say, "Oh, let's let's do a League of Extraordinary Gentlemen again," Barf, please. Everyone loved that the first time round, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Another reason to believe that Universal learns from its from its mistakes, right? Because obviously they do every single time. Not really. So if they I think there should be a moratorium on shared universes. There's one that works and the rest can fuck off. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I think think that's it. There's one that works. Star Wars kind of sort of, yeah, it's it's old enough that it's kind of just sustains it and sustains itself, but we can stop it too. Okay. So there's Marvel, there's Star Wars. That's it. I don't want any, any more. If, and I'd be much happier if people in the Warner brothers understood this too, that they don't really need to do. And, you know, Tie, them, tie their films together with loose pro- plot threads that doesn't have to be a requirement to make a successful film. All, all you need is a great story. That's all, that's all you need. Mm. I think uh, I have one more potential mashup to throw in there if you want to hear it. I think David Lowry doing The Mummy or maybe Roy Anderson doing The Mummy would be an interesting one where he just kind of sits in his pyramids for millions of years and questions existence might be an interesting one. To kind of negate all this, the anti, the anti-franchise monster film there would be an interesting one, maybe. I could only imagine the the uh, reception at Cannes of a Roy Anderson the Mummy film. Uh, what mass walkouts do we think, or just applause, applause, applause? I think mass walkouts and standing ovations in the same yeah. screening. I think would be think think like a Lars von Trier reception for that kind of thing. Well, a Lars von Trier Dracula film. That just that that to me is I will I will go watch that like tonight if I could do. I just I, mm. I just want to see Universal just just push the boundaries. I think Lee Winnell doing the Invisible Man. It's is it is it out of tune? Maybe was it a massive success? Yes. Let's start getting filmmakers from not only the independent market. I don't want it to be a Star Wars thing where you know you have um, Lord and Miller coming from an independent background making this, or you have Colin Trevor making this, and they all get fired. I just want to see unique voices, and I think. There's an incredible, incredible amount of independent filmmakers out there who are not like Gosling, who have got the potential to just push the boat, make something insepid, make something vulgar, but have a little bit of heart to it, have a bit of a story to it. But we, we, we talk about shared universes, like Jakub said. I think, I think shared universes here is a potential. Is in every walk of cinema, it's a potential. But I think the best bet to go here in Tesla Watt is to make partnership films, make duo films. Let's do um, The Wolfman. And, 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 and Frankenstein or Dracula and the Mummy. Let's try those first, make a partnership films. Is it, gonna, is it gonna turn out well? Probably not. I mean, how does that work when you've got a director with their certain aesthetic with another director and how do you mash them? Like James Wan's Ackerman in, in that films and, and then Zack Snyder's or Joss Whedon's Justice League. 
the, the blend doesn't work for a shared universe without a dictator in charge. And I, I, maybe maybe Justin Blum can do that, but I don't think he's in that business to do it. I think he wants to make incredibly important and, and entertaining singular entities of films like Halloween. Maybe the day that that, that Michael Myers will fight, uh, I don't know, Jason Voorhees again. Maybe that's on their rise. But I think definitely we should, we should Universal should start exploiting ideas of making individual films then incorporating into it. But who who knows? Who, who knows? I, I, I can see it going either way, but for it to be a, a resounding success, I don't think Universal have got that quite quite nailed on. Well, you know, you can always go, how about we go all the way back to the 70s and say, give good voices a little bit of money and see what they come up with. You don't, you don't, we don't, you don't need to tie anything to a Frankenstein or Dracula or the creature from the anything that's already pre-existing to make a good story. You could argue that the if the film, one else film, The Invisible Man, you could call it something else, and then people would still go for it. It doesn't have to be tied to to you know H. G. Wells. Uh, original novella it doesn't have to be tied into the 1930 something film it doesn't happen it's just inspired by this sort of lore all it needs is just a, a little thin thread of inspiration that's all you need you don't have to tie the property with and trademark it properly to actually to make money i don't think you know Jacob, you just inspired me as well you talk about the 1970s horror why don't universal do the same thing that hammer horror made where they get five or six actors Peter Cushing, Christopher Lee, a few more reasonably well-equipped actors with performance skills and, and that can bring a, a modest audience there. And why don't they just chop and change roles? Why don't one year we see a Wolfman with Peter, well, a Peter Cushing-inspired actor to play that and then he then or she then would play the villain in the next film or then she or he would then play Van Helsing? Ultimately, does that not benefit Universal by, creating, by getting these actors on long-term contracts? not saturating a market of a shared universe, but ultimately they can get away with what, selling the same film over and over again with different parts, different people. I think that's an effective way of going about it. Will they do it? I probably don't think so. I don't think an actor of any sort of being would want to replicate uh, the same performance and just another character, but it works in theatre. I mean, you look at uh, Danny Boyle's Frankenstein um, adaption in theatre, Johnny Lee Miller and Benedict Cumberbatch, each other night they would swap the parts. It keeps it interesting from an audience perspective, but also uh, keeps that role uh, unique and full of character and full of um, and weight. I, I think that's definitely something they should look at, uh, in my opinion, anyway, just to, just to spice it up a little bit, just throw a little bit of flavour in there. Mm, take the James Bond approach, it sounds like. I mean, Live and Let Die could just as easily be the title for a vampire film, so why not, you know? I think you should probably copyright that, Rora. I think you've got an idea there. Absolutely. Sort out. I'll, I'll, jump, I'll jump on it right after this, yeah. Then as Jacob's El, uh, Abbott and Costello idea with Simon Pegg and Nick Frost, I think that's probably something you, you may want to get intellectual property right on before it starts. Um, <laughs> can we, can just, we just edit it out just in case? Yeah, well, yes, I will do. <laughs> just to echo as well, um, why are Universal so preoccupied with creating um, a shared universe or potential shared universe of all these films that have been done before. Why don't they do something like Shyamalan did with uh, uh, Unbreakable Split in Glass? Why don't they take individual independent films they've made in a horror-oriented bracket? And why don't they start crafting them into a shared universe? Because then it, it devoids the audience of having an expectation, somewhat of, a, of an insight into where this can all go. 
Um, I could definitely see, I don't want to see a, a glass shared universe from the one we've already got, but there's definitely certain universal properties like, you know, we look at John and Peele, Get Out and Us. I wouldn't touch those films because individually they work wonders, but th there must be some universal properties that they can sort of tie together loosely. Does that interest anyone? Because that, that to me, after everything we've spoken about, that excites me the most of what, what where that could go. What the tying together of properties? I mean, I kind of, I kind of already think that you know it doesn't really have to you know, be in the nineties, they and the eight and the eighties. You kind of had these sort of shared universes in air quotes, right? But they were all sort of Easter eggs. There, there was no plot involved that you have to watch. I don't know. You'd have to watch. The Invisible Man to know what's going on in the Wolfman. Like, these are all standalone sort of properties. And then, and then, if you're a fan and you look closely in the corner of the frame, you, you'll see a poster somewhere. And then that kind of is a little bit of an inside joke that kind of points to the other film. And that's to me, that's actually inherently more interesting than having like a massive overarching plot tying things together. So I would basically just throw this question back to you and say, do you actually need to do this? Do, what and is there any other reason than um, Universal not knowing how to make money anymore? Because just, all because all they all they have is just they see these piles of properties and say, oh, this is not making us dollars. We need to make money, and and all all the projects that we generate are not on the level of the Avengers because nothing is. I just like to throw in Jack. Maybe a cautionary tale from the film industry about why mixing genres is not a good thing. Uh, the, the keen-eyed viewers back in 1980, whatever it was, when Predator 2 came out, <laughs> would have seen um, an alien head in the background, which obviously led to you know, a hugely successful and fruitful and critically praised franchise after that. So, uh, yeah, let's, let's, let's do it again. I, well, that, that, that universe is screaming for some sort of life as well. Um, but speaking of what you said, Jakob, about... Um, you know, having these Easter eggs. Blumhouse isn't um, afraid of doing that. I mean, truth or, uh, truth or dare, and I mean, regardless of the actual property or happy to, uh, death day to you, they had Halloween posters in there. They're Easter eggs. I, but I think audiences now are, are so projected to have that. Well, if the Invisible Man's here, where's the Wolfman? I think it's going to get to that point where there's sort of a demand and expectation. Hopefully we can, uh, audiences, we can resist that. But if someone's programmed to be in that sort of world, I mean, look at the MCU. The MCU now could never sort of dictate itself to be a singular um, episodic um, franchise anymore. It ha has to be a shared universe. There's no way they can back down from that. And we'll see the longevity there if they can do it. I mean, with how they're going to throw the X-Men in there or, or whatever other property they've got now after what's happening with the... Uh, Fox. Um, Universal have got plenty of room to manoeuvre here. Well, whichever direction they take is going to be incredibly interesting. If it works or it doesn't, I think whatever's going to whatever's going to happen is going to be a, probably a, a spectacle no matter what. But you know, um, audience expectation is a weird thing because when you start start to tailor what what you make, as well by, if you start be, being dictated to by mobs of fans then inherently the quality of your putting out is going to do, is going to be worse because it's whenever the um, as you said if oh if the viewers expect oh that this how is this tied to the other film how 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 am i supposed to position this in this little landscape of films if you just then let them realize 
oh, it's not connected, they will they well they they will they will figure it out. They will say, oh, okay, that's not connected. That's great because they're audiences are like children. If you let them dictate what's for dinner, you'll only eat chocolate for dinner, right? Because that's what they want to eat. So, and if you then tell them, no, it's broccoli today, they'll eat broccoli. And they, they'll, they'll whine for five minutes and they'll eat the goddamn broccoli. So at some point, like, I think the artists should, the artist should assert themselves a little bit more and say, no, this doesn't have to be a shared universe. We can, we can make it stand on its own two feet. It doesn't have to tie into anything. It would be fine. And Universal should probably understand that you don't have to be on a bandwagon to be successful. Moving on from the news, on every episode of ClapperCast, we like to spotlight two significant releases from the week and filmmaking world. Today, we'll be looking at the directorial debut from Nicholas Ash Bateman, The Wanting Mayor, and Shane Carus, Unmade Opus, Atopiera, as well as a larger body of work, The Wanting Mayor, an era-spanning tale about a mother and daughter who share a deeper connection between themselves and their lineage. A man found me. I remember it. Mm. The ship had left. I was on the rocks. Below the wall. So he took me to this woman. All I know is I am what I am. So I haven't seen the film myself yet, but uh, Jakob and Diego have. So what do you guys think of it? Diego, you reviewed it for the site. So what are your thoughts on this? Well, it's extremely interesting to say the least. It's, I don't know if I would recommend it to everyone, but I'd say if you like films that maybe put atmosphere over narrative, like Under the Skin or The Tree of Life, or some of Karuth's films, for instance, if you like films like that, that maybe don't have as much plot, then you're gonna be in for a treat for this one. It's, like I said, it's not as focused on its plot, and honestly, there were some parts where I, I didn't really understand exactly what was the purpose of it, but just the general atmosphere and the vibe of it that Bateman was able to put together, just, it made it like a different experience. Like it, I'd say it was like transcendent, like it was incredible. Um, well, so from my end, I also, do you know what? I would agree. This is a very interesting film to watch. However, it's almost impossible to recommend. I don't want to say it's unlike you'll, anything you'll ever see because that would be a, a little bit of an overstatement, but it is definitely weird. And it has to be actually acknowledged that one of the many, many, one of the main reasons why this movie is imp- interesting to watch is because of how it was made. It was made on, I don't know, a shoestring budget of $10,000 s- scrapes together by, by these young people and then it was made over a course of, I think, o- almost a decade, where with, I think, half of the production o- only taking off after uh, securing some larger funding and interest from Shane Carruth and, and other, uh, other executive producers. But however, it's difficult to recommend because, as I said in my little article I, re- uh, I wrote for Clapper, it's kind of a fantasy film, but it's not really a fantasy film at all. So it's difficult to recommend to people based on what they could, what they like, because it's, it takes these genre expectations and just plays them w- with them a little bit and leaves them, leaves the viewer thinking that, oh, it's, it's a little bit different than I expected. And I think that's the way to sort of take this film. It's a, it's a fantasy 
in a world that, that the filmmaker describes as withering. However, it's never really, I think never really once mentioned the film where this takes place. It, take, it could take place anywhere. It's this real murky world of smugglers and these women and horses that's kind of dreamlike where there's a woman who carries a dream, uh, like a little sort of genetic memory of a world that happened, well, of whether this relates to our universe or not. It's all extremely mysterious. And the whole story, if, if condensed to one sentence, uh, a, a story about a woman who tries to go from where she is, which is a very sort of horrible place, across the big body of water, across an ocean to some form of a paradise where the life's supposed to be better. And it's not even about how she's going to get there. It's about how, how this whole experience makes her feel. It's, th this is why it's very difficult to sort of understand what the film is about, because it, no one really tells you what it is about. And it's also, as a result, difficult to recommend to anyone, because it's, it's kind of what you make it to be yourself. It's very much open to interpretation. I don't know, what, what, what do you think, Diego, on, on, about that? Uh, I mean, yeah, like I, I totally agree with what you say. It's definitely up to how experimental you like the films that you watch to be. And like I said, even some of the main plot lines, like what it talked about the dream in the synopsis, to be honest, it was a little bit hard to see exactly to the extent that that tied in. Like, for instance, they introduced some of these major plot lines. Some of them they don't even introduce in the film they introduce maybe like in promotional material or things like that. And then in the film itself, it's kind of hard to see where it goes. Like it does have a conclusion, most of them, but the journey it takes is kind of, I'd say in the passenger seat to just like the events that are going on in the film. Some of them, yeah, they do connect. But for instance, we are introduced, I'd say maybe in the midway point of the film, we are introduced to a woman and we're not even sure how she connects to the main character until maybe 20 minutes later in the film. And you're kind of just left in the dark there with Bateman guiding you and you just have to trust him. But I feel like if you trust him and you trust his talents and you trust the atmosphere that is built, it's, it's a great thing to experience. Uh, so in the interview that Clapper did with Bateman, uh, I'm just posing this question to both of you as this is kind of a pseudo fantasy film by the sounds of things. He said that he's very keen on, in the future of his career, only making films exclusively set in this fantasy world that he's made here. Does the prospect of that excite you guys, or do you feel like he should probably branch out and try some new things? Well, to be honest, I do feel like he should branch out, but simply because he just seems to be an incredible talent. And to just have him work in this one world would be kind of a shame to see what else he could do, because he might have that untapped. But I do feel like if they maybe focus a little bit more on the plot while still keeping that atmosphere, this could become maybe what Narnia, like an artistic version of maybe what Narnia was aiming to be in the early 2000s. So yeah, I do see there's potential in solely exploring this world, but I do, I would prefer having him branch out into different things. Maybe like what Christopher Nolan did with The Dark Knight, where yes, he would have a franchise there, but in the middle of that, he would branch out into different avenues that honestly produced maybe even better results than had he just stuck in to the Dark Knight. Here's where I disagree with this. <laughs> um, because well, I, I disagree mainly with this point that um, Bateman should 
branch out into other things. If he if, if this is what he lives and breathes, let him do it. Just give him a, give him give him money. Let 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 him do it. Um, what this film is, in my mind, okay. If you think about fantasy films, uh, that's that's pretty much that was my sort of the entire gambit of my uh, of my article about this film, is this twist on world building, right? This kind of film invites you into this world. It promises you that okay, this there's this magical place where things are happening that you don't quite understand, but it doesn't explain anything. It's basically like, kind of like THX 1138, where you just dropped in a world and just you just see people do shit that you don't understand. Like people put balls in walls or um, and, and they, they get squares and square pegs back and then they put it somewhere else and you just have to realize, oh, it's this is like I'm an alien in a world um, that I'm trying to understand and no one's guiding me. So imagine that this is, he's, he's giving you the mythology of a world that's just not, not described at all. Instead of Greek mythology with tomes of stories with, with Hercules and Zeus and whatever, gods and how the world is built, how it works, who does what and why and to whom, you get these snippets of little stone tablets with little stories of there's this woman and there's this dream that's been carried for generations or there's there's these horses that are just carried from this continent to the other continent you don't know what this continent looks like someone may have told you that it has snow in it you don't even know and there are smugglers who sell tickets to accompany these horses that's all you know that's pretty much the mythology it's just a forgotten civilization that just happened to be there one day and you've just discovered it you stumbled upon this world that you don't understand and then i actually am interested in seeing this man going further with this world will he then introduce more detail to it or will he take this subversion of of audience expectation because audience expect and when they when they see fantasy of any descript description they think about races they think about tangential plot lines they think about languages it's all sort of sort of post-talking sort of expectation and um this could be interesting when you this as an antidote to this as an okay well this is a world that you have to figure out yourself no one's going to tell you and the filmmaker is going to keep his cards close to his chest because he wants you the viewer to figure out what you think this would be and let your imagination run, run wild a little bit more and I think this is inherently more interesting than, than, than having him, I don't know, having this be a CV for another Marvel movie or whatever. My only worry is this, this, this guy spent a decade of his life making this. Making this. And there's a, I, I can't remember who said this, but there's this little saying um, in the storytelling business that, you know, you have your whole life to write your first book because until you're known, until you're on the market with your first piece of art, you have your whole life to tinker with it, to play with it. And he spent a 10, 10 years making, making a movie on a, on a shoestring budget, which would be the equivalent of he basically built a little raft and paddled through the, through the Atlantic. This is a great challenge. This is a great achievement, should be applauded because you know, this doesn't happen every day. What are you gonna do next? Are you gonna paddle the through the Atlantic you know, in the other direction, are you going, or are you going to do something else? This this is a challenge to me, and then I would like to see where he takes this further, because hopefully maybe someone will give him a little bit more money to play with, or trust him with 
a cast of characters or a cast of actors i mean how how about how about that instead of just him asking him to just i don't know direct a dracula film so yeah i definitely agree with those points and the only thing like you said i'm worried about is if he takes another 10 years to develop a sequel to this or a branch off of this film that could ultimately hurt his career and also kind of not have us the fans be able to experience the extent of his potential but yeah what i've seen actually is that he does mention that maybe the films that take place in this world will be different genres and they will explore different parts and they will be he says here like made in different ways or like made with different themes and stuff like that so i feel like that could be an interesting balance between sticking solely in this world and going out and expanding into totally different films as rory said at the beginning i i, I didn't also have the pleasure to uh, to watch bateman's uh, debut the wanting mayor um obviously i've read the article and uh, the great work over at clapper by by diego and jacob um it, it makes mention of Bateman in the interview where he's got three films ready to go. They've all been written and you're just waiting to be financed and, and being given the green light. Most of those films, he implies, are going to take insight and, and, and world build uh, the central con continent, and I believe, believe it's pronounced Levien um, in Witheren, um, to explore the, the mythology. As, as from from, a, from what Jakob said earlier about it's not really a bad thing to internally explore one property as long as it's interesting and it's and it has engagement. Does anyone else sort of see where this can sort of craft Bateman to be a little bit one note? Do you, do you think highlighting one world and making three films about it helps Bateman as a creator? Um, I don't I don't I don't necessarily want to say that pushing the the boat and making like you said maybe. A Dracula film or an alien film, for example, will be detrimental to, to Bateman's creative output. But is there an audience there for three more films exploring an identity, exploring a setting and, and mood that hasn't really been explored to a great amount of detail? It's still quite an enigmatic and, and um, a mysterious feature. I think three films I think is quite an excessive thing I think go back in don't, don't get me wrong as long as there's an audience there I just don't want bit, Nicholas Ashbaitman's a young director he's worked on this a decade and when you work on something for such amount of time I can understand it's difficult to sort of let go but I don't I, I think that this screams to me and I may be mistaken that he's cornering his own market here and there's no sort of development to, to go anywhere Jakob and, and, and Diego Obviously, you, you you've both seen this film. Does this does does this scream a universe? I mean, we spoke about before about Universal having issues making one. Is is there an oh, sure. an independent market to make it or, or or not? Well, I feel like if he implements two things, then there is potential there. And like I said, I do share some of your worries. But I feel like if a I've noticed, like I, he said, he's not gonna have it be one genre. It's gonna be multiple genres, and each film is gonna be in the way that he describes it, it's going to be very, very different just with the same setting. So that could add to some variety, but also, like I said, if he approaches, he probably won't, but if he does approach like a career path, like Christopher Nolan, where he has, he has his own franchise film. Like he, let's say we make a franchise out of this. 
yes, he directs maybe three or four of those. But in between, he goes out, he branches out, maybe makes something more mainstream, or maybe he makes something more personal, but something that is separate from this world and could possibly gain him more visibility. So I feel like if he takes those two things and considers them and tries to apply them, then I feel this could be very successful. But you do need some of that to work because if it doesn't, then I don't know where this could go. And I don't know how successful it will be. Um, yeah, just a brief little interlude here. What it feels like he's describing, and I'm getting flashbacks here to kind of the early, mid-2000s. Um, it sounds like a bit of a James Cameron avatar situation here. Granted, this is $10,000 instead of $240 million. But it seems like he's kind of putting all his eggs in one basket and saying, no, I want to exclusively work in this universe. And therefore, he's kind of limiting himself, not only creatively and personally, but also from an outside perspective. I think it'll deter potential offers to do different films for different studios or different uh, people funding him. But it really feels like repeat a repetition of someone creating a world and granted a very, you know, well-made film and then immediately limiting, them, limiting themselves to spend the rest of their career in that zone, if you will. I think, that, I think that's interesting to go on from that, Rory, as well. Like the James Cameron, Cameron comparisons quite eerie. Um, and quite apt. The, the, the verdict will still be out on those sequels, but if we use this, the example that Bateman used, would people go to the world of Pandora if one was a comedy and one was a, one was a drama and one was a horror? Does Pandora really have that energy to keep on bringing audiences back? I don't think so. And I think not, not to conflict Bateman and, 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 and Cameron, their talents or anything like that, but my issue is that this setting that Bateman has, has poured a, a decade over in his life in, and, and, I, and I respect that as an independent filmmaker and an independent market, I think it's balls and I think it's brave and I think it's um, incredibly good for independent filmmaking. But I just can't see why people would come back for four films if one of them's a comedy. Is this setting, like I said before, I, I just can't, I can't see the pull for the setting, this, this mystical place. I'm a mythical, mystical single sitter in constant winter. Where, where's, the, where's the exact pull for that? I mean, also $10,000 to make this is, for a filmmaker is a, is a life-changing amount of money. What's next then? Who, who's going to put $10,000 towards a comedy set in this world? You know, that, that's the only issue I have. If it's self-financed again, it goes through Kickstarter, which The Wanting Mayor was. Obviously, we, we, it's, had, it's had help by uh, quite an infamous producer. But where does this land in, in, in VOD? Is it getting a cinema release? I don't think so. Um, is, there, is there going to be a, a cult market for it? I mean, the best comparison to see here is David Lynch. David Lynch makes the same film and same thematic work each and every time. If it's Twin Peaks, if it's a straight story, which is probably the one out, or if it's uh, anything, Blue Velvet, Elizabeth, uh, Elizabeth Ele Elephant Man, David Lynch makes the exact same thematic work in each individual film, but he changes the scenery. It changes the characters, but the dialogue, uh, the mysticism is always there. I think Bateman's plan is, is is to replicate that. Make different properties. Have them in. Have them in a. If you want to share this world, yes, but don't singular trap yourself in having to having to exploit your world to interject all these different characters and and tones. I think whatever Bateman makes next should stand on its own, but. 
have the same sort of weight and feeling towards it. And in that way, you create double the audience, double the exposure, because you've got a new, a new, a new property to look at, but you've also got a pre-existing one as well. And, and they, they, they may mix and match together in, in more ways than one. But in that way, the director's got longevity. He's also got uh, a filmography that's growing and it's evolving like Lynch has. You know, who, who would have thought that the man who made uh, Twin Peaks could make The Elephant Man or, or June or, 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 or The Straight Story? I think Bateman should look at Lynch. And I, I don't want to project what, what Bateman wants to do. Can, he can do his full and his own right to do it. But I think Lynch is a great prototype for, for an independent filmmaker like, like Bateman to evolve. Um, that's an interesting point, actually. But then uh, what, what I would retort with is a question of, is Bateman actually interested in making films for other people than himself? Because if you actually watch The, uh, the Wanting Mare, um, you, will actually, you, you will find out that this is not a film designed with audience in mind, with the audience in mind. This is not something that is designed to please you. You actually have to do the legwork yourself. You have to make, <laughs> you have to please yourself watching it. But it kind of just sounds, sounds wrong. But anyway, what I mean by this, he seems like he doesn't care about making money, making making movies. He doesn't care about having a career. I well, I may come to eat my words again. Um, I do, this film does not strike me as you know some of these little indie films that are just resumes for studio executives. This is this is something like Colin Trevorrow's I don't know Safety Not Guaranteed, a film that says, "Please hire me to make a Star Wars film. Please, I beg of you." Right? Like th this is something that I think. He, care, he cares about telling his story, sharing his vision, and apart from this, he's just happy having this work of art displayed somewhere, which is which brings its own problems with, because it's not it's not a, this is not a book. You cannot just you don't you need more than a typewriter to to make a film. You need money. You need backing. You need production. You need there, there's a whole lot of people you need to convince that this is a worthy endeavor. And then some of these people may want a return on, on their investment. This is why this may be a doomed endeavor in the, f in, in the first place. And we'll probably come back to it when we start talking about Shane Karouf, who's also an executive producer on this, that by exploring his vision of, I don't know, building a mythology or maybe just showing these little stone tablets of other little myths placed in, in this weird, strange world, of abandoned cities and smugglers and just people who don't really take showers. Um, it's, he, to do this right, you, he would have to have money and he probably won't get money, but he cannot wait 10 years to do another film because he, he will just get forgotten. People cannot be bothered reading a tweet to the very end, let alone wait 10 years for a sequel to, to a film that no one in the world has watched. So there's this difficult balancing act. He would either have to compromise on his vision or he would have to just agree with himself that he's never going to finish what, he's, what he had started because he would have to paddle through the ocean for $10,000 for 10 years making every single VFX shot on his MacBook. And that's just untenable, I think, from a point of view of just production and filmmaking and actually producing something for 
that will be interesting for someone else to uh, you know to sell to people not to contradict myself I was talking about financing earlier as well we I think we failed to uh, remember that this is purely financed through Kickstarter which is independent backers so there's an audience there. I mean, the, the, this, it, it reached its its budget, ten thousand dollars. It made it well within uh, the suggested um, calendar that that Kickstarter um, asked for. So there's definitely ten thousand people worth a dollar that will that are going to give this to to Bateman to to finance. How many of those will come back after the wanting mayor? Who who actually to begin with who will be able to see it? In fact. Um, depending on the release cycle, it's going to be very, very interesting. I mean, I, I, I don't want to jump the gun, but I, I feel that Bateman is going to have the exact same career that, and we'll talk about him in a minute, Shane Carruth's. I just feel like there's so much potential with Bateman, but because he wants to make stuff in-house and not play the system, I think it's going to be detrimental to his career. And I, I don't think the system is always a bad thing to play. If you play it right, you can do Look at Eggers. Eggers made The Witch and he's made The Lighthouse. And he's probably going to make Nosferatu and he's going to make a, a Viking um, epic. There's ways, there's ways to play uh, the studio system with A24. And I don't think this is so much different to something that Eggers would make or Lynch would make. And, and they, they've found an audience and they've found a, 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 a cult era of cinema in their own right. So I think, I think Bateman's potential is will always come down to the fact that if he's willing to play a ball, and if he isn't, fair play to him, but if he is, I think it offers far greater rewards than it would it would do to sort of just sit at home, essentially, and and, uh, and wait for those backers to come to you. Um, that's very true. You can, you know, you can find 10,000 people worth a dollar to do this. However, th- this 10,000 people comes with a decade w- worth of wor- waking. Uh, uh, waiting on this so that's that presents an issue because I've, i think rory mentioned the avatar sort of debacle it was like no one gives a shit at this point because it's been 12 years or oh, 11 years like no like i honest to god i've got the blu-ray on my shelf i haven't watched it since 2010 okay that's like i i, I vaguely remember that there, there were big smurfs in the film that's pretty much what what i remember about avatar but what I think about his idea of exploring this, fine, do it. But he would, as you said, he would have to com- he would have to actually start thinking about playing the system and actually trying to get some people interested in this who would expedite the process, who would m- make things easier for him. Because I think this is this kind of leads into our next topic of discussion, the Shane Carruth's new sizzle reel for Atopiary. But he takes advice from a filmmaker who's resume is a half page long because he insists on doing everything himself and then if he follows this path of doing everything you know diy style on his macbook and that's that's great that's that's an achievement you're building a beautiful house made of matchsticks but if you build one you've built them all like okay well then what's next you're gonna build a Taj Mahal made of out of matchsticks. Great, you'll get a little bit of a round of applause, and that's it. But you're repeating yourself essentially. So, a filmmaker or any artist needs to challenge themselves, and uh, if he doesn't do that, 
he's just, he's either never going to make his his sequels or his other he's never going to tell these stories these are going to be confined to the drawer for forever because he he, if he refuses to play the play the game a little bit like Eggers or Aster or an, anyone, then he won't. He simply won't get his films made. So Clapper's review for The Wanting Mayor, as well as our interviews with Nicholas Ash Bateman and essays on the film, are available on the website over at www.clapperltd.co.uk. But I think it's about time that we move on to the man himself, Shane Carruth, who's been executive producer on The Wanting Mayor. He's been a particularly interesting figure in the film industry over the last decade or so. Um, and what I want to know what our thoughts are on the man himself, and then we'll move on to the sizzle reels. So, Jakob, what do you think about Shane Carruth? Let's have some, let's have some opinions on the man. Um, okay. I'll, I'll, okay, I need to throw my credentials on this, I think, because I've seen Primer years ago, and I really, really liked it. Um, <sighs> predominantly because I, okay professionally i'm a scientist so it, it it was always it's always interesting to see how science is portrayed in films and primer is one of those very rare examples uh, where scientific discovery is kind of shown realistically so that was kind of one of the selling points that kind of got me on board with the film because scientific discovery for the most part is kind of boring there's no flasks with glowing liquids there's no eureka moments it's all just brutal day-to-day -day sort of gray sort of work and then figuring out ideas testing them and then and then figuring out how your ideas work and then trying to abuse them a little bit and then realizing that oh you, you've got it all wrong um i've seen upstream caller two days ago and then uh, and and that's pretty much where my opinion on carols kind of comes into place because i've seen his uh, his his entire filmography two films that's all he's made and he's 48 years old and he made two films in the span of the last a decade and a half so it's kind of difficult to talk about a body of work when there isn't really much of a body of work to speak of especially where he takes a decade between each film and as i said before he probably spent a decade making primer in the first place because he made it on like 16 millimeter and then just uh, i don't know with with just two friends and he edited it himself and he shot it himself he made it score himself it's all great and admirable so he's kind of a, a filmmaker that i kind of admire because he can make these things himself but it's, it's it's one that i admire but i don't necessarily like if that makes any sense i think we were speaking earlier and i think me and diego have the same idea obviously correct me if i'm wrong diego but we tend to like the idea of shane curry more than the films that he makes so he seems to be this kind of bastion of indie filmmaking, of independent thought and intellectual ideas in cinema. And to an extent he is. I mean, I haven't seen Primer, but Upstream Color, I think, is a great example of kind of Terence Malick-esque balancing of emotion and plot. And, uh, you know, all the music that Caruth does is very moving and kind of hypnotic, which aligns with the uh, plot of the film. And I think he's just got some very interesting ideas, uh, which really come to fruition in a topiary. The script is available online. It's about 245 pages. It's meant to be about two and a half hour long film. But I think the sci-fi ideas he has in that script and in Upstream Colour and probably in Primer are all just so intriguing and so well thought out that it's a shame that he hasn't had the chance to 
show them more. But then again, I think I agree with you when you're saying that he does, he, he's a very impressive figure in the industry, but he does severely limit himself through his approach to the way that he makes films. Yeah, I definitely have to say that I do see Jacob's point, but I have to agree more with Rory. And although, yes, okay, I do like the idea of him more. I do feel like if you look at it in the context of, oh, Upstream Color is only his second film. Like that is a pretty much an impressive feat. And like I said, yes, it's more of like less plot, more atmosphere. Like I do think the plot in that film, to be honest, is pretty weak. But the way in which it's put together is like, I'd say in my opinion, revolutionary. That might be an overstatement, but that's how I feel. And, but yeah, the fact that he hasn't really done much apart from that in Primer, which I haven't seen, but I've heard great things from it. Uh, just, it kind of makes it seem like he may just be focusing in on himself. Whether like if he were, if he learns to delegate things to other people and maybe even get into the studio system, I know that he doesn't like that, but let's say he did. I feel like he would be able to be much more successful. And let's say the ideas and the themes and the ways that he directs in his first two films could have been expanded much further. And by this point in time, would he could probably be known as maybe the next Nolan, maybe something even greater than that. But sadly, he hasn't been able to do that. But you do see potential in his script for a topiary and the sizzle reel as well. I read it about a week ago. And while it does take a little bit of time to get started and it can be a bit repetitive, it is a hard read to be honest, the ending, just the scope of the ending is in, it's one of the greatest things I've ever read. And also the fact that in the script, it does say that many of, much of it plays as a previously on section is something that I've kind of been experimenting with in my own like short films that I'm making. And I'm a bit astonished that I haven't seen it used in Hollywood or in bigger films because I do feel like that would be something that could yes it could get the plot going faster and it could give it more of a dynamic feel in just films in general so yeah I am a bit surprised that that technique hasn't been used before and that along with just his ideas makes it seem like he does have potential but yeah he does need more films and he does need more experience to be able to like fully prove himself and be known as like the patron saint of indie film or film in general. I don't really have the biggest insight into uh, Carew's um, filmography, nor, nor of his filmmaking ability. I've seen Primer a long time ago. If I remember right, I was quite, uh, quite impressed by it. But uh, we talk about this, this feature, this unmade feature, and the, the impression I get that this is a project that's dead in the water. What we're getting here is it's a 10 year cycle. It started in 2009 where one of his old cast members said that he was creating something that was going to change the surface of a filmmaking. Well, 10 years later, we're just getting a teaser trailer that to me screams like it's a possibility to sort of have a, a little bit more of a, of a conversation on the topic rather than it's been done to death. Um, I, I just I can't see where this is going to go. The, the budget screams astronomical amounts of money he hasn't ever really worked with anyone who has been a part of his projects throughout his filmography that can bring any money in the name Shane Carruth while had great potential back in the uh, early to mid 2000s is not particularly the same filmmaker you may think he is which is not never a detrimental thing because I think you should always have a, an ego because 
the only person who will doubt yourself is in fact yourself. Um, while everyone else is doing it, you might as well not jump in. But there's quite a lot of projects since 2014 with Upstream Colour that has never got off the ground. I mean, you've got that uh, alleged uh, shipping film with um, Keanu Reeves and Tom Holland that's, that's basically dead in the water. I can't see how that fits into everything. Um, Atopia is meant to be the last film before he then retires, which I think is detrimental to, to him as a creator. I think he's got so many ideas, work on the same level that Bayman wants to do. Th this is the difference. I think, I think this is Caruth's filmographer and his, his relationship with director Ryan Johnson, regardless of whatever film he made in 2017, which we won't go into, I think they're very similar directors. They've taken very similar career paths. And I think Johnson's played the game and got far more rewarded by it than Caruth has. Um, I, I think that, that, John, that Johnson with Looper, especially, to make a, uh, an independent science fiction film there with a heart, with a soul, with an interesting story, is probably what Caruth has always dreamed to do. But I think Johnson has just got there before him, which is unfortunate because Caruth shows all signs of being a great filmmaker with primer, upstream, colour, two examples of that. But I think this is a great insight to what Bateman needs to avoid. You can play the game and you can wait for the game to play you. And I think, unfortunately, with what I'm seeing by Caruth here is the game has played him, um, which is such a shame because... He, there's an auteur there, and I think I think Caruth knows that. I think he knows he's got so much talent. I think going the Tarantino way of making a certain amount of films and then then stopping, I think is detrimental to independent cinema. W would independent cinema be where it is today without Primer? I don't think so. I think Primer put it on its map. That with the um, Reservoir Dogs and uh, Kevin Smith's Clerks. I think those films, probably the Wachowskis Bound as well, there's a distinctive palette there that that catered towards those audiences wanting to see something different and special. It would be a shame for a topiary to be the last film of Caruth's career, but I don't think he's even going to get there. Um, people here might, 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 might disagree, but from what I'm seeing, I think the, 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 the tweets or the, the little pushes are just small sort of screaming moments for attention to be like, look, I can still do this. I mean, I mean, as Diego said, you, you've read the script, the end of it. No, no filmmaker. I mean, this, this is actually quite comparable to, 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 to Dune. Uh, Dennis, um, Denny Villeneuve um, has featured Dune, which they're going to split up into two parts. It's not going to make its money back. It's a far too niche product, but they're going for the epic science fiction aesthetic. I think what happens with Dune will ultimately decide what happens with Utopia. And I don't want to... Uh, state of my mind reader or I, I can I can predict the future but the the impact what June is going to have is going to be incredibly underwhelming and I think of no fault of his own because I think Johnson inadvertently has probably curated his career against Caruth and it looks like um, Denny Villeneuve is going to unfortunately bottle um, any sort of I don't I don't want to be so detrimental to him but I just feel that everything goes against Caruth and it has throughout his filmographer and I think that I think that Denny Villeneuve's um Dune is 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 ultimately gonna gonna give this a gravestone. Well first of all I I agree with most of that but I do want to mention that at least from what it's shown in interviews uh Caruth has another project in the works and it sounds like a topiary but from what he said he that's dead in the water for him. He doesn't want to revisit it. 
But then again, posting the trailer, making some fanfare on Twitter, that does point to maybe him wanting to go back, but not really admitting to himself that he wants to go back to that film. And I feel also something that kind of propelled that his choice of releasing the teaser or the sizzle reel is the fact that, of course, Zack Snyder's Justice League just got picked up by HBO Max. And the fact that a streaming service is willing to shell out $30 million for the vision of a director, whether or not that's a good vision or a bad vision, that's up for discussion. But the fact that streaming services are willing to do that does show that there is potential for that, especially when his budget is only $14 million. And also I'd say uh, something recent that happened as well was with Killer of the Flower and Moon, that is a bigger film, much bigger budget. But the fact that Paramount and Apple and multiple studios were able to work together to finance that, it does point to a direction where if that approach is taken with a topiary, it could work. Because once again, it's only $14 million. So compared to much bigger films, I, I don't know. I feel like $14 million to even Zack Snyder's $30 million like that is definitely a good gamble for a streaming service to take, especially if they're looking to kind of go into a different direction to a more art house direction. Cause like I know for instance, the Criterion channel and movie, maybe they're taking some of Netflix's audiences away and maybe Netflix wants to maybe have more of that art house audience. So I don't know, but that could be a possibility. Well, not to rain on your parade bag, I kind of, kind of completely disagree. Um, okay, well, that's a, there's so many points I want to raise. I should have probably just taken notes while, I, while you were speaking. Uh, you and Jack, <laughs> actually. Um, well, let's address, let's go from, from, from the back. Like the idea of convincing someone like Netflix or whatever to fund Shane Caruth. Well, let's just say that, you know, just because Apple and someone else is financing the kill, killer of the flower moon uh, and throwing, I don't know how many millions of dollars. That's a Scorsese film. This guy has been out there since the 70s. He's, he's probably the, the, the biggest living legend in the filmmaking world alive, to, well, alive today, right? He's, he's, he's the filmmaker people look up to. There's a, world, there's a universe of a difference between him and a, and a, and a guy who made two films in span of, in span of two decades that 10,000 people in total have seen. And I would actually disagree with this idea that oh, Primer has, has done something for the independent cinema. It was a bit of a little spike on the map. It was when it won in Sundance, it was, it was talk of the town for a week. Same happened for Upstream Color. Like when this released, my news feed was just all about Shane Carruth. Everyone was talking about Shane Carruth this, Shane Carruth that. Upstream Color, such a great film. Oh my goodness. And then, do you know what happened after that? It disappeared. You can't even probably, you can't even go to your local shop and find it on DVD or Blu-ray. You can't, primarily, you can't even find it in, 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 in high definition. You have to rent it from Amazon in, in, in standard def if you, really need, if you really want to watch it. It's very difficult to find, which tells you that this guy is not really that big of a deal. He's... And this, and, and yet another reason why Atopia is never going to get made, because when you think, oh, it's just fourteen million dollars, have you actually seen fourteen million dollars in person? It's a load of money, and you know, if, if I had one million dollar, I would be sorted for life. Right. So if you think about someone who actually has fourteen million dollars, or say twenty million dollars, 
to throw it at a project, that's a big deal, right? And then if you imagine this, like you've read the script, right? I, I, I've just, I, I leaped through it. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's not a script, it's a brick. Okay, let's, let's be honest. To a film that already he says, this is gonna be three hour long epic about choruses and flumses and whatever, whatever else in there. And then imagine this, go, going into an office of an older man who, who has made, like imagine Dino De Laurentiis, I don't, I'm not sure if it, any, anyone, a big producer sitting in, in his office, a man who has made films, who has made people into great filmmakers, gave, gave people platforms, and he knows how, how films are made. He has a meeting with Shane Carruth who drops this brick of a script on his desk and asks him, this is the next, next greatest thing in the world of cinema. You need to read this. And then he proceeds to read the script and he can't get through page 10 because it's a load of garbage, right? It's just unreadable because it's just tons of notes. There, like script is supposed to be a, a story and this is just all appendices, little footnotes because there's so much crap in there. <laughs> this is just difficult to kind of get your head around. It's just impossible. So how, how, is, how is anyone going to, I don't know, give, give $1 million, let alone 14 uh, on, on, on a movie like this? This is never going to get made. So you, you, could, you could say, oh, he's, he's, he's this big filmmaker. No, he's not, he's not even a filmmaker as far as I'm concerned. He's a guy who talks about making movies and not making them. He's a guy who keeps telling me that he has the next project in the works. He pisses me off because he, he just, he tells me that he's going to get this next great big thing made. He's, a, he's basically an equivalent of someone who wants, um, who wants to borrow your money but you, but, and he tells you, oh, do you know what? I, need, I have this great business idea in mind. All I need is a thousand bucks. If you lend me a thousand bucks, I'm going to get this, get, get this project off the ground and I'm going to give you your money back. You know you're not getting your money back because he doesn't, he doesn't know how to, make, how to make this project work. So all he's ever going to do is going to just take your money and spend it. And that's what he is in fact, because he primarily he refuses to work with other people you look at his imdb page or his wikipedia page for for his films it's all shane of this shane of that he directs he writes he stars he lenses he makes music he edits he, i think he let do a he let david lowry do a little bit of editing on upstream color and just does not collaborate and filmmaking is is a collaborative effort you can't make movies on your own because it's impossible. Like if you you're gonna be like Vincent Gallo, basically all you need is Chloe Sevigny to give you a blowjob, and then that's pretty much <laughs> like that's the kind of allure you'll be shooting at, making a little bit of a splash, and then just be an after like a little footnote in the history of cinema. These the films. He's not even a filmmaker. He, he, these things that he wants to make, these are books. He should be given a typewriter and in a room and just write them. Because you write book, books on your own. You don't need other people for doing that because he clearly believes that he's the best at doing everything himself. So let, let a topiary be a novel. I'll, I'll, I'll even read it. <laughs> so, but, but this is never going to be a movie, let alone a movie for $14 million about, I don't know, universes and choruses made of plastic. I can't remember what, what else is in the script. It's a little bit of 
he, I think he's basically too, too, too arrogant to understand that he's not as big of a deal that he, think he, he, think, he thinks he is. What I just want to say about Karuth, irrespective of how you view the man or whether or not the film will get made, I'm still in awe of what he's tried to achieve here. And granted, the script is messy and kind of undeveloped, but I think that's because he's trying to contain all these, you know, credit to him, advanced sci-fi ideas and arguably some things that haven't been done widely in the kind of cinematic uh, spectrum. Um, and I just really appreciate the visuals and the atmosphere that he goes for. And I feel like the atmosphere from Upstream Colour attributed to this story would make for a, a pretty stirring piece of sci-fi. I mean, I'm not going to compare him to, you know, Kubrick or, Kubrick or anything like that, because, you know, let's, let's be realistic here. But um, I just really think what he's trying to achieve is admirable. But I agree with you. I, I, it breaks my heart, but I think he's a victim of his own ambition, but also a victim of the, the film industry as a whole. You, one, need, one need only look at something like David Lynch's Ronnie Rocket or... Jodorowsky's Dune, or even, you know, Lynch's Dune. I mean, the, the studio system pretty much destroyed all the creativity on that one. But um, talking about the sizzle reel itself, I wrote in the article for Clapper that should be up by the time this is out, the, the atmosphere and the feeling that that provides is genuinely, I think, affecting. And granted, that is only a tease of what eventually, you know, never came. But the visuals and the ideas and the you know brief bit of narration that we get it all combines together to create something i think would have been truly truly you know if not for everyone a, a very interesting cinematic experience or experiment that i think you know we're, we've been deprived of uh so i'll just put it out there that caruth may not be everyone's cup of tea and i can definitely understand why you think the things that you think about him i don't think you're wrong at all but i do think that a topiary is definitely a very interesting film that we've very sadly missed out on. So to add my two cents as well, I think that this screams Richard Kelly to me. Richard Kelly, famously director, Donnie Darko, um, to a rather great independent success, went back in, edited it, ruined it, waited five or six years and then created Southland Tales and destroyed his career because there's an idea of self-indulgent there when you're untouchable. And the film itself can't stand on its own feet. It's, 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 it's absolutely crumbled with its own way of, of what it wants to say, how it wants to say it. And I think Atopiary is going to be a, a very, very, very similar, a similar experience for, uh, for Caruth, um, if he can, in fact, get that money. Now, Diego, you spoke earlier about the streaming angle. Now, let, let's, let, let's look at that and, and let's, let's objectively pinpoint where that can go wrong. Let's look at Netflix. Netflix are making their own independent films. They're making it to their own success of however you want to see it. They've just bought the uh, a very famous cinema um, in LA, LA so they can screen their own films and then get an Oscar. They're not going to ruin $30 million or $40 million on a Karuth sci-fi epic. Netflix are completely out of the door on that one. Let's take Apple TV. Apple TV can't even sufficiently survive on their own TV shows like Defending Jacob or... Uh, for All Mankind or The Morning Show or I See. Nothing is being picked up for a second season. It's not. It's going to go as downhill as anyone else else can see it. 
they're also not going to run the risk if they can also buy Greyhound or the Flowers of the Killer Moon and finance that partly with Paramount or with, um, with Universal or 20th Century Fox. So Apple TV, they're out the window. That leaves you with a fewer options. Mover. Mubi have slowly distributed films, but they haven't financed it. They distributed um, a Silver Lake, David Mitchell's film. They distributed it, they didn't finance it. They distributed a few more, a few here, a few there. They're not going to distribute $30 million on Carew's film, even though it's independently run, it's independently marketed, and it's independently distributed. It's not going to happen. So then that leaves you a very slim chance of Disney doing it, which is a, a no-no. Criterion Channel, can't see them doing it as well because I think they're on death's door um, with the new release of HBO Max. That leaves you HBO Max, which I'd say no because obviously the, the, the property that we will want, we will, will not name out loud, uh, the Snyder Cut, they're, they're throwing that there. They're not going to double dose. That leaves you one viable option, which is Shudder. Now, Shudder cater to horror. And sometimes they cater to, to sci-fi because I, I reviewed Blood Machines for them, which premiered at the Glasgow Film Festival. It's 50 minutes long. It shows very similar themes uh, to explore a sci-fi world. Um, but Seth Ickerman could only raise so, so, so much amount of money. It could only film 50 minutes of it. From all these streaming platforms, nobody's going to run the risk of 30 million or $40 million which could finance a well-respected TV show um, or, or a feature film that, that could get them an Oscar to comparing it to anything else on the market. I mean, Jakob said that $40 million or $30 million is a lot of money. It is in the independent market, but this film isn't, will only be independently financed. There's no way this film can make its money back if, if it's not distributed by a significant company. All we have to look at is look at the Wachowskis and Tom Toyka's Cloud Atlas. Warner Brothers partly put money into it, and then the Wachowskis and Toyka had to both put a mass amount of residuals in that. So director's fee was, were waived, um, gross fees were waived just to get that film made. It's 100, I think it's 128 million, and it bombed. Regardless of Cloud Atlas, which I greatly enjoy, I think it's a, probably the Wachowski's magnum opus, aside from obviously The Matrix. Nobody's running that risk anymore in this circle. I think independent cinema, on that level's dead. I think it has been for some time. So Caruth's angle of trying to sort of negotiate with a Netflix or a streaming service, I think that needs to be put to one side. And I think he, he seriously needs to look how he's going to actually make this or finance it. Independently, could he do it? Yes. Would he have to remortgage his house six times over? Yes. So that's out of the question. Could he bring in a mass amount of star, star power or appeal. Probably, I think he's, he's worked in this industry long enough. He, he's worked on, um, you know, as consultants on Looper. He's worked as an editor with, as uh, Jakub said, with uh, uh, David Lowry on uh, a ghost story. He's got connections there, but that amount of money is, is not just a, a pocket change for some people, but that amount of money changes whether Paramount want to make Scorsese's next film because that's the that's amount of money they lost on Silence. You know, that's a huge, huge amount for even the likes of Warner Brothers uh, or, or, or Paramount. And if a director, an author, a legendary uh, creator of film, and Martin Scorsese can't get that distributor or production to budge on those, that, that chunk of money, which is quite a lot considerably in the independent market, I think Caru's probably 
going to have to accept that if this doesn't happen soon, um, it's not going to happen later. Because, you know, R Richard Kelly now is, 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 I mean, after Southland Tales, which is 2004, that, that, that's 16 years ago. You know, you've got another generation of filmmakers there. You've got another generation of audiences. Um, I think it's far too gone. I would, I would go back to, to what Bateman's trying to say, and I don't know I'm reiterating this, but I think Carew's best bet is to look at what Bateman wants to do and, and, and create a, an independent production company where they can finance their own films without someone above them saying, this will never reach an audience. Make a film for $50,000, make a film for $100,000. You know, kickstart it, make a world you want to make. But I think Carew's trying to you know, to put the news out there that, hey guys, this, this is still wanting to be made, I can still do this. I think it falls on deaf ears. And, and if this is the so-called last film he wants to make and then he wants to move on, I think, uh, I think he's got another thing coming. I think he'll probably be uh, to, to waiting in the, in the wings for quite some time for a topiary to even see the light of day. Make another film like Primer, you know? Um, there's, there's, there's not anything bad with, say, you know, just for the Wachowskis made Bound, a very minimalistic uh, lesbian uh, thriller and then they made the matrix there's no there's no and that obviously the sequels but there's nothing wrong with going back after that and making a small film like bound i think caruth's best bet is to look at the uh, and we, we spoke about bateman looking at david lynch i think caruth needs to look at ben wheatley ben wheatley makes films like a feeling a field in england he makes a kill list very small independent films that have got a great niche audience and then he makes something like Free Fire, which is a rather bigger budget, and he's working with the likes of Arnie Hammer, uh, Breed Larson, Killian Murtha. Um, but what Ben Wheatley did differently is Ben Wheatley didn't go back and think, right, I want a bigger budget now. Ben Wheatley went, um, went to go make an independent film, Colin Burstead, which is the most minimalistic film about 19 people arguing on New Year's Eve, or, or I believe it's at a family party, you know? And I think he's famously said that he made a field in England because he knew that he would never be able to go back and make a film in black and white about the um, civil war in England for $10,000 after he, after he made free fight. No one would give him the money to do that. So that you, I think sometimes you've got to step away from it and look like sometimes going for a bigger budget doesn't mean you're evolving. It just means you're getting more money to play with. I mean, Ben Wheatley is going to go back in and make an Arnie Hammy, Lily James uh, Rebecca uh, film, which is infamously, infamously made by Alfred Hitchcock um, almost sort of 70 years ago now. And then after Wheatley makes that, he'll probably go back to the independent circuit again. There's a, there's a way and means to do it. I think Carew's best bet was probably that a topiary, regardless if it's dead in the water, I think he needs to go back and make an independent film again. You know, raise $100,000 for, for a director of his stature, which will, not, will never be really a, much of a problem. And then keep on making these features, get, get this audience again. I mean, he's, he's only 48, he's got loads of time left. And then after 10 more years, look at Utopia and look at, look at the possibility because we've already gone through 10 years and it hasn't happened. What's another 10 to, to wait on that, you know? Well, not to be the optimist here, but there are actually quite a few points that I want to cover on this. First of all, uh, that idea of maybe having a studio maybe created by Carruth and I know Soderbergh and Fincher have also said that they want to make a studio where they could just throw money at independent filmmakers who have a vision. I know that's been floated as a possibility. I don't know when the last time was that it was talked about that but not 
it wasn't recent. But one thing that you had mentioned about, okay, maybe starting with an independent film and then slowly ramping up, at least if he sticks to his word, I'm not sure if that's going to work because he did say that he's going to retire after his third film, which in my opinion is pretty preposterous, but that's his opinion. And he's said things like that multiple times before. Like I said, this is something like Tarantino. Like we don't know if he's going to stick to it or not, but only time will tell. Additionally, another avenue of which this film could eventually get made, and I know it hasn't been talked about before, is, well, let's go back to A24, what they've been doing recently. So at the beginning of the year, they in their calendar, they put three untitled wide-release films, which they said is going to be probably bigger than Uncut Gems, bigger than anything they've ever done before. And it's slowly been revealed to be, one, The Green Knight, and two, and this is very important, a sci-fi film, which seems to be a pretty big endeavor, uh, Everything, Everywhere, All at Once, by, I think, the directors of Swiss Army Man. And who knows, if that goes well, and also considering that A24 does have good bonds with Amazon, Canopy, and I even go to, say, Netflix, that who knows if some co-financing could be set up or if A24 in the future, if those films become very successful and they want to reach an even wider audience and come with these like new independent ideas, but reach a wider audience. Who knows? It could be a possibility. Just two things on that, Diego. The first thing, you know, you mentioned about Steven Soderbergh and David Fincher wanting to make their own production company. Is mm-hmm. that what you mentioned before? I'm not sure if it was David Fincher, but I know for sure Soderbergh had mentioned that. And you were saying Carruth could be joined to that. But Soderbergh has been quoted multiple times saying that if he could, he would form a production company where it would be like around the 70s, where they would just throw money at independent voices. I really like Steven Soderbergh. I love his films. I like Fincher. Steven Soderbergh is the biggest bullshitter going. Soderbergh left um, after Contagion and, and, and and filmed Magic Mike and then came back to edit it. And he said he was out, he was gone, he was done. He was, he was bored with the, the, uh, the studio system and then seemingly came out of, back out of nowhere and he's worked with Netflix. I mean, I, I, I don't, there's a contradiction of these filmmakers who say that they're so grappled and, and strangled by this system, yet they go from one system to their own and then they go into another system. David Fincher will never do that purely because David Fincher is getting millions um, off, off Netflix to make. Uh, we'll make House of Cards, Mindhunter, and then he's doing his new... Um, Orson Welles, um, Citizen Kane um, biography film. I, I, I think these filmmakers are, are sort of are only tested by the, the waters that they, they deem how shallow and deep it is. Um, regardless of your, your second point that you said about uh, A24, um, A24, A24 we, as, as film tutor expertly has to say that they, they, they cock up every single big budget film that they have. Under the Silver Lake, they massively underwhelmed. Um, Last Black Man in San Francisco, they massively underwhelmed. Um, it's only these niche markets that you've got with a Green Knight or a, a stuff like Hereditary Midsummer, films that create their own hype. They'll still cock it up. I, I, even if they manage to give crew $40 million to make that film, nobody will be able to see it because you can't distribute it. So they'll never make the money back. And if it got an A24 and HBO now have reportedly got their own little um, streaming network. Maybe that's a possibility, but it's just going to be so incredibly niche. I mean, like to say, go, going back to Soderbergh and Fincher, I think it's all well and good to say that you're being strangled by the studio system, but nothing else 
caters to what they want to do. I mean, if Soderbergh made his own films, he'd still have to work the distribute. He'd still have to work with Fox or Universal to distribute, for example, High Flying Birds, which which Netflix did for him. Um, and, and then you know you, his latest one with Antonio Banderas and Gary Oldman. There's just these films that these directors want to make always complain about they're being strangled by by this this uh, this distribution company, this production company. It's always because they make a film that's so incredibly niche. You've got to understand that the finances who put this money forward, the person or the people who put $40 million into this pot need to see something back. Otherwise, they might as well burn the money. A topiary doesn't do that. I mean, you, you look at, like I said, about A24 and you look at Midsummer. Midsummer will get something back because Hereditary. Hereditary got something back because it was probably one of the genre-defining horrors of the last 10 years. Will a topiary create the same amount of buzz and define an era of filmmaking that Hereditary or, or for something like Get Out did by Jordan Peele? I just don't think it will. I think there's no longevity here with this talk, with this, uh, this, this project from, from Karouf. And, and like I said, he, he, even if he does manage to create his own independent company and he can still finance, he's still got to make a profit to, to, to make it ma um, manageable. I mean, people often forget that the 1970s, you know, George Lucas and Francis Ford Coppola and Spielberg, and these, these people were, um, you know, were just throwing money at to make films. That's not entirely true. Spielberg always worked in, in the, in the um, studio system. He never had an issue. Um, he still doesn't have an issue, even though his, his films now, are, from what you will, are not the filmmaking process that they once were. George Lucas got, got lucky because he financed American Graffiti and TH1138 through 20th Century Fox, then earned residuals on toys through Star Wars. So he was set up for life. The one that is a comparison here is Brian De Palma and Francis Ford Coppola. Brian De Palma has never been able to create a steady work, a body of work because he can't work within the studio system and he can't independently do it either. And Francis Ford Coppola infamously has, has, has had troubles with the independent market because of his own production company, which is Zeotrope, which financed both Godfather films, The Conversation and Apocalypse Now. He had to repeatedly go back to the well with a godfather because Zio Trump could not make enough money, even with, even with infamous films like The Conversation, which is a masterpiece, and Apocalypse Now, which ruined his career. I mean, it took four years for it to, to, to edit. He shot more footage for Amer Apocalypse Now, which is one film than, than Peter Jackson did for three Lord of the Rings films. I mean, he put himself out of business because that's what happens is that when you create your own independent production company there's no one above you saying look you can't do that because it's not not only is it the monetary value is not there but there's no residual returns i mean you look at coppola's films now which you know you've got a, a twix uh, i mean say what you will about about where he's gone down that road and he's having to re-release apocalypse now again and you know god forbid that if, if Mario Puzo was still alive he would go back to the when he would have made a godfather part four there's no doubt there for me personally. I think that, that to make a, their own production company is one thing, but you have to have a reasonable sort of output of, of getting audiences back in. And if Francis Ford Coppola couldn't do it, and he's probably arguably one of the 21st century greatest directors, genre-defining, filmmaking-defining auteurs, I think Karouf doesn't stand a chance. I really don't. Well, that's some great points in here. Now, what I wanted to actually come back to, I mean, uh, sort of re rewind back a little bit, is the, uh, well, say, when you mentioned, oh, Ben Wheatley's been doing this and that and the other, 
um, and he's been quite successful. And then you think about how many movies has has he made? Quite a quite a lot, right? And one of the one 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 of the things he has been con consistently doing, even though he started as a writer director and a little bit of an kind of all rounder, he he knows how to collaborate with people, how to delegate, and how to communicate his thoughts. Like there's there's this one interview I've once read 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 with, uh, or maybe I watched it with um, Tarantino when someone asked him about, oh, when he was still very young, I think he was on the set of Pulp Fiction. He was he was being he was talking about um, being a young guy in in a director's chair and what it's like and how do you talk to these big guys like Harvey Keitel and whatever, and then and he says well he had a chat I think with Terry Gilliam. Um, about being a director, and he basically asked him, "Oh, what do you? Th what's what's my job? What do I do?" And then he says, "Well, like, you don't have to do everything. You don't have to know how to build sets. You don't have to know how to act. You don't have to know how to light the scene. What you need to know, you need to hire people who will do it for you. You need to find the right people who will do what you want them to do, and you need to communicate what you want, and then let them, you know, and leave the how of how it's done to them. Karuf just does not know how to communicate. He he just he just I think he thinks even though his I would say Up, Upstream Color is a, is an interesting film, um, and then Primer is an interesting film, but he does not know how to either he does not know or he re refuses to tell other people or trust other people with with his vision he has to do everything everything himself from lighting the scene from shooting to shooting his his films scoring it and even making vfx or visual effects um he has to do everything himself because he just does not i think he just does not trust that someone could do a better job than him and that's but, and that's basically just how his career in film industry is probably not going to happen. And maybe he is actually subconsciously, maybe he is right that he's going to retire after making Etopia because if he actually gets to make it, he's going to be 70 when this actually hits the cinemas, right? <laughs> so that'll be just about right, the right time to retire because he's going to be old. Um, <laughs> so if you, think, if you think about... How, uh, he... He just does not. Well, if he cannot, if he cannot work with other people, he should not make movies. I think he should. This is this this is not a job for for people. This is not a career for or artistic as a root of ex, artistic expression for people who don't know how to work with other people. He should write, and then just publish them as books, because he has ideas that are, you know you could com compare his thoughts up to like david foster wallace or thomas pynchon he he has a, a head full of great ideas but they're not filmable they're, these don't belong on the screen screen they belong on the page they and he can make his 1200 page masterpiece like against the day that pynchon's you know, novel that's famously unfilmable because it has like a million characters and then million things going on in this in, in it and it's great as a book you put it on a shelf and you take it off the shelf and discuss it as a, as a book and that's all it has to be that's all it needs to be not everything has to be a film and not everyone has to be a filmmaker and maybe Shane Carroll should probably maybe understand that as much as it's admirable that he's accomplished this much maybe not maybe Atopiary, his grand masterpiece, is not meant to be. It should be something else instead.
you go to his Wikipedia um, and you go, go from 2005 when he made Primer and look at all the nominations he's had and he hasn't won anything in 10 years. Best Actress, no. Best Director, no. Best Original Score, that's Georgia Film Critics Association, London Film, London Film Critics, South by Southwest, uh, Chicago, Gotham, Independent Spirit Awards, Los Angeles. Like, it, there's just, the, there's not getting picked for anything. I say that partly the fact that his films aren't necessarily like award, like they're not built for awards, you know what I mean? I yeah, I mean, yeah. So I'm sorry, but this is, this, no, no. Like, he, the critical acclaim he's getting every single time he put no, the twice twi two th two times he put put anything in in cinemas, he got critics to just to 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 wank him off right. Everything everyone was just Ebert was just he could not stop gushing over Primer. It was amazing in his in 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 his eyes. People were just jizzing themselves over Upstream Color. It was great. Like the reception was great, but it's just. The fact that he does not win is basically like a little bit of an ironic companion piece to the fact he talks about making movies and he doesn't make them, and then crit he gets critics to talk great things about about his movies, and they do not vote for for awards when it comes to you know to put their money when their mouths are. Yeah, there's there's a massive dissonance there. Just like you know, with every other filmography, I find that so strange. Like I just was reading it now, and I was like, I was like, wait a second, like it's just a massive massive gap from 05 to 2013 there's nothing and then all of a sudden he comes back and and i think the audience and well you've got to bear in mind most of these um critics associations are obviously by critics so as, as jacob said if you've got eber and stuff like that giving raving reviews that should then amalgamate into positive feedback in this uh, you know the festival circuit and you're talking about th these are not niche markets but these are markets that usually reward filmmakers that have the certain ideals that Karouf does, independent films, films that have a thematic weight. And, and, and the feedback here is just, I don't want to say abysmal because that's too strong, but you look at like, I mean, he, he won a, the last significantly, he won US Dramatic Special Jury Award for Sound Design at Sundance Film Festival. I mean, for an auteur that wants $40 million for a film, that doesn't reflect that there's, there's good enough feedback i mean i mean like diego said i mean i understand what you mean like he doesn't he's not a filmmaker who creates um, to awards but there's aside from like the likes of david or russell and tarantino pops his head up every other of the year or dicaprio um i don't think there's many filmmakers out there who, who, who purely make films for awards anyway i think that's a i think that's a fallacy but this is this is just, this is i don't even have to edit this in but this is just quite shocking i didn't realize how bad it was if you if you imagine, say Darren Aronofsky to me was okay. Richard Kelly was a great uh, was a great sort of companion to this, right? Because he he kind of just well, actually if you think about Primer, it's kind of like an after effect of Donnie Darko. Yeah, of definitely. This sort of, definitely. Of, of this sort of post Lynchian sort of independent craze where young people figured out they they can make these puzzle box films that have a meaning, but they that you want them to have, but they also can. You, the viewer can project a whole shit ton of things on on top of, and they they can you can get students in dorm rooms to obsess over them for hours on end, right? But if you think about Darren Aronofsky, who made Pi, I think in 1998, I think 1999, some late late 90s. I think he's 98. This, yeah, so he made made a film for I don't know. At two thousand dollars, he he hired a friend and, and a few guys and whatever, and and then he 
still got well he played the system but he still retained his own voice right he he made a, a string of interesting films some of them more successful than others like the fountain for instance which was kind of sort of like his his idea of being too arrogant for his own sort of stature at the time but um he managed to retain the voice while playing the game and getting people to back his projects and you, you cannot agree with the fact that every single film he's made is or is original it's it, and it, it's distinctively his, regardless of what you know, what kind of money is behind it. He always manages to either convince people that his vision is great, or, 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 or just I don't know. He's he's lucky enough that people trust that he's going to do well with 150 million people about Noah, right? <laughs> so it's to to me like Karuf just looks at at these kind of kinds of filmmakers and he just thinks oh i can i can do just something like these people do and he forgets that these people work with other people he will they will reach out and they will never probably make make it known that they think they're better than everybody else and he kind of just strikes me as as someone who's who just thinks that he knows better and that's never a good idea if you want to if you want to survive in an environment that depends on teamwork well, it was originally 20 million. And then after he went through investors and they were like, they liked it, but they said they wouldn't invest in it. He brought it down to 14 and then he shopped it again. Nothing happened. And then that's when he kind of gave up. I don't want to add, I don't want to contradict myself. I don't want to add this in, obviously. But, you know, for the sake of for 12 million, 14 million dollars, you would have thought someone would have just given him that, wouldn't you? I mean, for the shit they make now, I would, I would be surprised that, that, you know, even though I don't, I don't want to contradict myself about A24, you might be right then, Diego, they, they might be the ones that actually might, might finance that. $14 million is, is, is what to, to create it. That's just the bottom line budget we're talking about though, aren't we? He, but when he talks to people about, oh, getting $14 million for, for, and he just drops a brick the size of you know a, a novel on a, on the table and says oh i want 14 million dollars for this film and it's going to have special effects and it's a and it's a sci-fi epic they think he's high because now 14 million dollars you get to i don't know convince ryan gosling to start in star in it and also it, i think it's also like most of the film is with a cast of oh by the way i want to hire 12 children to be the main stars he doesn't he he's well, okay a good chunk of director's job is telling actors what to do and then every director in the business will tell you that the most difficult people well, the, the most difficult sort of subjects to work with in the business is children and animals right so get a guy who does not communicate his vision to anybody else but himself try to communicate it to a bunch of 12 year olds not going to happen and then also a producer who says who sees this script and and this big story and says this is never going to cost 14 million dollars 14 million dollars is going to be just the special effect on this one little scene that's because he, he just does not know what he wants and, and they just don't and i think they just don't take him seriously and well, that, that's, that's why what no, i mean no yeah, like 14 million dollars that has to be bottom line nobody makes these films right i think the only director i've known who has gone into outer space to make a sci-fi film, and I don't mean literally, but has gone to make a sci-fi science fiction film and has remained it under budget as two people. It's Ridley Scott, because he's made ultimate, he's made ultimate most of his films in the sci-fi realm with Alien Covenant, which came under budget. And then you've got Danny Boyle's Sunshine that made no money, but he still got under budget. So $40 million is a bottom line, that's fair enough. This film, if he hasn't worked, and I'm not being disrespectful, he hasn't worked in six years, 
that fi the filmmaking landscape changes in, our, in basically a month. Look at it now. There's no way you can make a film um, in, in this sort of uh, era now where we have COVID-19, uh, the way that people want it to. I mean, Tyler Perry's trying to, to make some sort of rules and laws in Atlanta where they can make it intimately produced, but it's not going to happen. So let's take that into consideration. $14 million is your bottom line. It's going to go over a budget. So that's what, 16, 18, 20. It's then, we'll talk about, like Jakob said, you've got cast members that you've got to, if you're going to work with 12 year olds, they can't shoot during certain periods of the day. So then you've got, you've got to only uh, shoot and, and sort of it's like what, from sunrise to sunset. That escalates the budget more because you can't shoot more days. That's 25 million. You've got to hire more of these, these kids for, for scale, independently produced. There'll be far more issues that can arrive. More insurance goes up. And then you're talking about getting edited, which could take years. That goes up again for time. And then you've, you're talking about before it even gets um, a company to distribute it, you're in the whole $25, $35 million. So more or less, it will cost $40 million. And I think that's what I think I, I, I know exactly what you're trying to say, Jacob, where I think this is a man that's out of touch. And I, I don't, we don't have to put this in the podcast. I can edit around this. But just as a personal, he's so out of touch if he thinks he's going to get that made. Look at, look at David Lynch like, it, it, like that is a prime example like the man can't get his vision on screen anymore and you know yes he's got certain things to netflix and he's you know showtime ran ran a, a deal with him on 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 twin peaks but it almost never happened because they wouldn't pay him they wouldn't give him his budget who knows behind closed doors what david lynch has had to negate and say you know what i'll accept that we i mean he's a, he's a master of getting his vision on screen but we don't know to what extent he's had to make sacrifices on is caruth going to be the man that he'll say look I've got it down from 20 million to 14 million. What if someone comes to him like Jakob said and says, right, we can't have 12 children in this. Can you, can you put it down to two? Is he going to say yes? I don't think, I, I mean, is it, it's one of those things where you've got to swallow your pride. And I think a lot of filmmakers don't want to do that. And I, I completely understand that because if someone said to me, look, you can live this and you can live this way, but you can't do that. But it's not living the experience you want to live. So who, who, who knows if this will ever get made, but I think that'll lead, me, lead us into our next thing anyway. If anyone else has got anything to say. No, yeah, I'd just say that knowing his personality, and I do feel like that's his main weakness, is that he wants to make it completely about him, which is great, but especially if you're an indie filmmaker trying to transition into the studio world or into a movie with a bigger budget, that's near impossible to do. Like you're gonna have to be dealing with studio executives, we're going to want to change probably almost every aspect of that script. And I don't think that's something that he would be okay with. Do you know as well, I think that, that this has been a 10 year thing already. I think this has already gone beyond the boundary of it being a mythical object. I think people are more, more in tune with, oh my God, can you imagine what Utopia is like rather than the finished article? I think it, exactly. it's, it's more in the realm now of being a factor of a what if than it, than it, than it is being a, a, a concrete plan. I think it's gone to the point where it's like, oh, can you imagine um, Tarantino's Star Trek or can you imagine um, Sergio Leone's uh, Stalingrad? I think we've got to the point, or, or Kubrick's Napoleon. It's in that mythical ethos now where it's done. It, even if they do manage to make it, it will never live up to the expectation what you've got, Diego, or, or what, mm -hmm. what Rory's got, or Jacob's got, because we've all got indiv individual sort of identities of what we want this to be. It's, once you hit a barrier there, and it's an ethos, an ethos. There's no coming back from that. And I think, I think it, I think it, like I said, I'm not going to reiterate myself, but I think this, this, this boat sailed long, long, a long time ago for him, which is unfortunate, but that's the cycle of making films, isn't it? 
So to wrap up the conversation on Karouf's uh, uh, utopia, right, um, just to sum up in uh, in a sentence or so, what's the chances of this ever seeing the light of day? Rory, do you want to start? Okay, so I've already voiced about how I'd be excited to see this project come to fruition, seemingly against all odds, but I'd still love to see it, and I love his ambition. But uh, if Shane were ever listening to this, my advice would be um, get down to your corner shop with you know ten dollars or so, buy a few lottery tickets, and hope for the best. Jakub. Well, I think I've, I've I've said already enough to kind of know where I stand on this. But if to to make it sound positive, Shane, Bobby, if you're listening to this, by by any stroke of luck, please make it a novel. I'll I'll buy it and I'll read it. I think this is a book, not a film, and that will be great as a, a um, as a piece of literature. And maybe you should consider doing this 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 way. But as a film, I don't think this this will ever get made. Diego? While I'd love to watch this and be able to see this on the big screen, despite like the small resurgence in interest, I doubt that it's ever going to happen because of both his will and studios wanting, not being able to pick this up. I just, I don't see a possibility where this could ever happen in the near future, unfortunately. Just so my, my sum, uh, summation of it, um, on a personal level, this is never going to get made. I just... The, the the boat's surely gone out to sea now. It's it's not a, it's not in the harbour. However, not to contradict myself, but if someone came along and gave him the money, I would love to see this. And I hope he actually gets it made one way or another. I hope, like Rory said, I hope he goes down to his shop and he gets some of those lottery tickets because he's going to need it. But if it ever gets made, I think that he's got the passion and he's got the uh, head head mindset to to really get this done. The sizzle reel for Atopiary, as well as its script, are available online. A deeper look at the production history of Karuth's film can be found on the website. Just before we sign off, let's go over what everyone's been watching this week briefly. Um, I have been tuning into a bit of uh, Jim Jarmusch's back catalogue. Uh, Night on Earth this week was the one that impressed me particularly. Uh, if you haven't heard of it, it's probably one of the shining jewels in the crown of his career. And it's just about uh, five taxi drivers in five different cities taking place in the same 20 minutes over one night and just the relationships they form with their customers and the conversation and dialogue. And it's just a wonderful piece of very kind of subtle, low-budget filmmaking. But uh, Jakob, what have you been watching this week? Um, well, among other things, I think the thing I would probably like to bring people's attention to is I've watched uh, Celine Siamas. Uh, debut feature called Water Lilies. So, hopefully, we all know that Celine Siam is, is a director who's made the uh, portrait of a lady on, on fire, which, well, let's just say, took film Twitter by storm. And this is her first ever foray into filmmaking, and also, uh, also the first film, her first collaboration with Adele Hanel, who also starred in the portrait. And it kind of looks like. Siama's whole career has been de devoted into the idea of exploring female sexuality and sexual awakening and the idea of being, uh, uh, of, let's say, the, the homosexual awakening of sorts in a world tailored to heterosexual people. And this Water Ladies is basically the coming of age story about these three 15 year old girls who discover things about their bodies, about 
their feelings and emotions and they real and, and they have to navigate this world that's kind of created to ta to tailor the needs of young boys as well and it's a and it's a fascinating watch um it's kind of maybe maybe a little bit graphic occasionally but it's it, it, it's difficult to process because it kind of deals with these raw um emotions that you everyone knows from high school but it's a fascinating little gem that I think just about expired from movie and movies running a retrospective on Siama's work and I think Tomboy's are still available to watch and Girlhood's going to be available to watch in less than four weeks time and she's a filmmaker that definitely needs to be explored and needs to be talked about more because her voice is quite interesting and unique especially nowadays. Diego? So apart from watching most of Kuth's work as well as reading a topiary this week I saw Killer and Liebestown, which is a small Polish film that premiered at Berlin this year. And it's once again, one of those films like The Wanting Mayor, like Malik's work, it's very plotless and it's driven by its atmosphere. And it's an animated film. It's very crudely animated, but the way it's put together, while it does feel like it's going more for that experimental vibe, maybe a little too much, like more than Lynch even, overall, it's a great, and it's a very interesting watch, and I'd highly recommend it. And Jack? As editor-in-chief of an um, online magazine, um, to be afforded the uh, prestigious time of, of watching stuff like Water Lilies and uh, Jim Jarmusch features, uh, I've been uh, trying to get some uh, uh, contacts. So I've been working with uh, Nobi over AMG, and I'm not allowed to say what we've been, uh, been working with, but we're currently looking at some really interesting Japanese works of art. Um, which I'm desperately screaming to say what type of films, but uh, um, you'll just have to look, keep your eye up out and uh, at Clapper, uh, ltd.co.uk to, uh, to see what we've been looking at, but some incredibly uh, interesting Japanese works of art at the moment from uh, AMG. Well, the look on your face, I thought you were about to say you were doing a Michael Bay retrospective or something like that. No, that's not, that's not until next month, that one, Rora. <laughs> um, that's it for this week's episode of Clappercast. Where can we find everyone on social media? Uh, Jacob, do you want to start? My Twitter handle is at uh, JackLukeSharp. You can find me at all things films and Clapper over on Twitter. Jacob? Um, well, you can find me on Twitter at TalkAboutFilm and also, well, I write for Clapper as well, so you can read my stuff in there. And everything I watch, I review, so also you'll find my stuff uh, on Letterboxd, so uh, letterboxd.com slash Ravik, that's R-A-V-I-C, if, you, if you're interested in following my ramblings. And Diego. You can find my work on Clapper, as well as Letterboxd, where you can follow me at the Diego Andaluz. The Diego, A-N-D-A-L-U-Z. Lovely. Well, you can find all the latest releases of film and television reviewed at www.clapperltd.co.uk and find out social links on Clapper at Facebook and at ClapperLTD on Twitter. Thank you all for listening and we'll be back next week to discuss all things film. Thank you for listening to this episode of Clappercast. Please support the podcast by liking, rating, subscribing and sharing. If you'd like to support the podcast further, please visit and donate our Ko-fi link available in the description.